0: Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you today. You know, humankind has the incredible ability to innovate. God has given us intelligence, creativity, the ability to engineer a wide variety of impressive things. I've experienced that again firsthand this week as I went to the Canfield Fair and saw all the interesting types of food that we're able to engineer. And I listened last night from my pillow at midnight as the tractor pull was winding down. And I live like three or four miles away. But it sounded like it was right next door as the car alarms of my neighbors kept going off. It's not surprising that with our incredible ability to create things, that a struggle throughout human history has been the continual creation of man-made religion. Perhaps no more dramatic example of man-made religion can be found than what has happened in England with the invention of religion now that has several thousand followers. It started out as a prank, really, by postmodern atheists in 2001, who decided to gather enough signatures to get this religion on the official rolls of the United Kingdom. And before you know it, it began to take off. The force was strong with them, as many learned about this way of life, and that's really what it was, and became attracted to it. And as a bonus, they were able to regularly refer back to one of their sacred texts, which was... A famous movie franchise throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. If you haven't guessed it by now, the religion that I'm referring to is Jediism. No, I'm not kidding. Based on Star Wars, there are some 200,000 followers of Jediism who believe in the Force, who practice their religion by wearing cloaks with hoods out in public, and who are constantly engaging in the battle of good versus evil. According to a Cambridge divinity faculty scholar, Beth Singler, she says that Jediism is really a system. It's a patchwork of beliefs of Buddhism and Catholicism and Taoism and even samurai. It's not coherent in its nature. It doesn't focus solely on a god or a deity that is beyond humanity, but rather... According to the Anglican bishop, David Walker, Jediism is a code for living. Like other forms of code for living, it seeks to give meaning to the people who follow this man-made religion. Now, I know that this is a dramatic example. I know that you are not going to go to the fair today and probably find any Jedi's. Or go down and meet any at your local grocery store. And I sure hope that none of you are thinking about setting down your Bibles and picking up a lightsaber. But the idea of living by a code, even inventing a code to live by, is something that people, especially Christians throughout history, have wrestled with. And that is the topic of our text for today in the book of Colossians. So grab your Bible with me. Colossians chapter 2. It's found on page 984 of those pew Bibles in front of you. And we've seen so far over the last handful of weeks in the book of Colossians that Jesus is presented as being supreme. We see how those who put their faith in him are called to continue to grow and their maturity in Him. And how walking in Him, in this relationship with Christ, is really the best way to have a fruitful life. And now we see some very specific encouragement with regard to religion, the practice of religion, and what that means for those who find themselves in Christ. Are you there? Colossians chapter 2? It's found on page 984. Starting at verse 16, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, "Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or the Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason." By his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to all the things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. With all of our innovation with all of our creativity, with all of our desire within us to live by a code, a standard for life. Here Paul offers us some warning and some encouragement with regard to how your spiritual life is primarily defined. And he starts by warning that your spiritual life is not is not primarily defined by your religious activities. Look with me at verse 16. We see here that there are some that are trying to define faithfulness to God by Jesus plus a combination of religious or physical activities. What people eat, what people drink, whether or not they celebrate this festival or whether or not they celebrate or observe the Sabbath. Questions about food and drink were common in those days as they were today. As they are today. Could you be a Christian and eat meat that had been previously sacrificed to idols? It's a common question as meat was sold in the marketplace in the ancient world. Could you be a Christian and eat or handle pork? I mean, the Jews... Coming out of the Old Testament law, saw pork as unclean. Jesus came, he changed everything, and now there are all these Gentile Christians running around looking for a bacon sandwich. But could they be truly spiritual and eat that bacon? Similarly, we see with regard to festivals or the Sabbath certain people would observe the Sabbath. The Jews would do absolutely no work in honor to God and in rest. But what if you didn't observe that day? What if you worked on that day? You see, what was happening here was in highlighting certain laws or rules for spirituality, the practical result was the Christian community was creating different classes of Christians. Those who abstained from eating that type of meat were considered more spiritual than those that ate the meat. Those who practiced or observed the Sabbath were super-Christians, and those who didn't, well, they weren't quite so faithful or so spiritual. What we see again and again throughout the New Testament and really throughout our own experience is this desire to create a code, to create a law, to say, Jesus Plus, some practice is going to mean I am more spiritual or more faithful. And when we get into that territory, we call that legalism. Legalism is when laws or rules are held as an extra standard of Christianity over and above the gospel of faith in Jesus for your salvation. And legalism is incredibly dangerous. Paul talks about it a lot in the New Testament. And here, we see it again. Let me give for you just a brief flyby of a couple of the ways legalism is dangerous. First, we see that legalism distorts the purpose of the Old Testament law. Look with me at verse 17. With regard to these legal practices, Paul says, These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. The Old Testament law was a shadow, a pointer to the coming Messiah and the people's need for a Messiah. When they are placed as the true substance in primary position and Jesus is placed as something maybe equal with them, now the law is distorted and the person of Jesus is distorted. The substance has come, Jesus has arrived, and therefore the law has fulfilled its purposes. Another danger of legalism is that legalism injures other Christians. You get the sense that behind this passage, these words, don't let anybody pass judgment on you, and don't let anybody disqualify you. These are words because people are doing this, and in doing so, they're injuring People in the family of God. Now, if any of you have been in a uh, heavily legalistic environment, you know exactly how this feels. You know exactly how it feels to be part of the who's in or the who's out crowd. How faithfulness can be defined by a number of things beyond what the Bible says. I read a story this last week about a missionary couple who were so injured by legalism of the pettiest sort that they actually came off the mission field and did not return. They were on a foreign field where it was very difficult to get many food supplies from the United States, especially one of their favorite supplies, which was peanut butter. Now, the other missionaries in that community decided that it was part of their spiritual calling and sacrifice to God to abstain from peanut butter not even to try to pursue the acquiring of peanut butter because it was difficult and it and 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 it over time represented to them a form of piety of spirituality we're super christians because we deny ourselves certain things that we like even peanut butter sounds silly the new missionaries came onto the field And became part of this missionary community. But these people really liked peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And it was a taste of home for them. Chunky or smooth, I don't know. But their friends, their supporting churches, would send them shipments of American peanut butter. And oh, you would think that they were having adultery as the missionary community, the Christian community around them, the American missionaries, all started started to look at them funny. And before you know it, started to make comments. And before you know it, started to judge them as somehow a second class of minister. And beyond that, even a second class of Christian. All over peanut butter. But that's what legalism does. Legalism, Jesus plus anything, ultimately ends up injuring other people. Another danger of legalism is that it, of course, breeds hypocrisy. Legalism breeds hypocrisy. One of the, one of the societal critiques of all of you, you read the news, you go to CNN.com, you hear, read the op-ed pages about Christians, and they say, I can't stand Christians because they are such hypocrites. Some friends of ours, and that is based, by the way, on a notion of legalism. Sometimes true within the Christian camp. Sometimes not true. Amy and I have some friends who we love very dearly who belong to a religious sect that is based on Christianity. And part of their code for living is the observance of certain Old Testament laws. Not all Old Testament laws, mind you, just certain ones. And that's the first problem with this code, is I don't exactly understand how they chose some and not others, but that's beside the point. In this code for living, one of those laws is with regard to what you eat. And although the Old Testament doesn't prohibit the eating of all types of meat, they decided that it is a more holy version to abstain from eating meat. And so they're vegetarians. And they're not obnoxious about it. They simply abstain when meat is offered to them. They don't really have it in their house. And as a result, within their sect, or within their community, they are viewed as pious, spiritual, devoted people. But here's the problem. This law is based on the notion that you are healthier and therefore more honoring to God when you're vegetarian. But they don't understand from other things that are unhealthy, particularly sugar. And so this gentleman weighs between 270 and 300 pounds, by my best guess. And if pastries come into the office, this man goes to work. He's got a secret stash of candy in the desk drawer. And a variety of other practices with regard to food and unhealthy consumption of food in quantity or in type are sort of common for him. But but he's a vegetarian. He's healthy. And therefore he's godly. He checked the box. And what happens is a quiet, in this case, a quiet type of hypocrisy that leads to a class of super spiritual people. There's another danger, it's more significant than all of the others. And that is what we see in this text that legalism distorts the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 23. Verse 23 says, these these things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and the severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These legalistic codes of life they seem like they're wise as a spiritual endeavor. But in fact, they simply become another form of self-justification. And in the end, they do not lead to a holier, more pure type of living. Now many of us have grown up in legalistic environments. Some of us have been injured by legalism. Others maybe have the propensity to still fall into that legalistic trap. I wonder what some of the ways that we struggle with that are. I mean, after all, by nature of a lifestyle code, they're outward in appearance. We can see them with our own eyes. I wonder what some of the ways are that we experience this still. I mean, In some ways, there's some easy picking, right? I mean, what, what you wear. What if you follow Jesus, but you don't look the part? Some of us maybe struggle with looking down on people that don't look like we think that they should, the way we think would be becoming of a Christian. Now, of course, the Bible does call for modesty with regard to our dress. But beyond that, whether women wear a dress or whether they wear pants and a shirt, or whether they wear shorts and a t-shirt, or whether men dress modestly in all kinds of ways, they can honor God in all of these different ways. One of our elders wore shorts today to church. I couldn't believe it. And guess what? He honored God as he did. How about what you eat and what you drink? That's a problem in the ancient world, and that one really hasn't gone away with regard to legalism. Still today, healthy eating is viewed as a higher plane of spirituality by some. Others take great offense to the Christian who consumes alcohol. And of course, we've all heard the saying, I'm a good boy. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. But did you know that the Bible doesn't forbid different types of food? You can actually be as spiritual as the next person if you go to the Canfield Fair and eat that greasy fried cheese on a stick. And the Bible does speak about drunkenness very plainly as a sin issue in the lives of people. But it doesn't talk about the consumption of alcohol being a sin. And so we take sin very seriously. But we don't add on to what the Bible says is sin or what it isn't sin. Because when we do, we fall into the grounds of legalism. And so we don't judge people when they go to the fair and they eat that greasy, nasty thing. We don't judge our friends or our neighbors or our Christian brothers and sisters if they have a glass of wine with dinner or have a beer while watching the Browns lose again. We (laughs) continue to recognize what 1 Corinthians 10 says, that we don't worry about what food or drink, or whether it's been sacrificed to idols because as 1 Corinthians 10:31 says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do whatever you do do it all to the glory of God the list goes on right We struggle with legalism today. Historically, we could talk about dancing. We could talk about where you live. We could talk about who you associate with. Anything that creates an artificial circle of acceptability is what we'd call legalism. Anything that creates an artificial circle of acceptability, and by artificial, I mean not explicitly biblical. This is legalism. And so for all of these reasons and many more, Paul says, your spiritual life is not primarily defined by these types of activities. Secondly, he warns us that our spiritual life is not primarily defined by some loose form of spiritualism. Look with me at verse 18. He says in verse 18... Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. The danger he's referring to here is a form of spirituality that plays a similar role to that of legalism. If observed, they promote a higher level of Christianity, the super Christians do these things, and the rest of us are over there. The really spiritual, engage in these things, and the rest of us, well, you're not quite as in tune with the Lord. We are really good, really good at creating man-made religion. And so asceticism is mentioned, and this is a predominant issue in the ancient world. Asceticism is very simply the belief that You believe in Jesus, plus you deny yourself the physical pleasures of the world. And therefore you are more spiritual. The worship of angels is mentioned, which again is the belief that you believe in Jesus, plus you worship heavenly beings beyond him. And and this one, though not a big issue today, kind of makes sense when you start to think about it. I mean, there's one God. and He has all of these people to care for and he seems sometimes distant from us. But the idea of having my own guardian angel, my own, just focused on me, that's pretty appealing, isn't it? And so some would worship these angels. Detailed visions are mentioned. Some were having visions in the church. They claimed they were from God, but the problem came in where they said, well, I'm having visions. Are you having visions? Oh, you're not? (laughs) I'm having visions, and this is what God said, and it means this for you. Oh, wait, you're not going to follow it? Oh, and the class of super-Christians are created. Some of us might have some experience in that today or relate to that experience. Others of us, like the Colossians, have the propensity to place second-order spiritual experiences in the place of the first-order position. The first 23 reminds us again. Look at it with me. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and the severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So if Jesus is supreme over all of creation, and your spiritual life is not primarily defined by your religious activities. If your spiritual life is not primarily defined by some loose form of spiritualism, now we see Paul gets to his main point, And that is, your spiritual life is defined by your connection to Jesus himself. And look at the ways that it's expressed with me. Verse 17 the substance of religious observance is Christ. Verse 19, he rebukes those who have vision for not holding fast to the head. Verse 20, he says, If, you di- if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Your spiritual life is defined by your connection with Jesus. He is united to you through faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins. The whole point of the passage is very simply that you need nothing more than Christ for your salvation. And you need nothing more than Christ for a vibrant spiritual life. Because you are united to him, you can and will indeed grow in spiritual vibrancy and even holiness. He is the one who is effective in combating the struggles of the flesh. Now, if this is true, if he is fully sufficient in all of these ways, then there are a number of implications for us. Let's list a couple. Number one, again and again and again, we see in the Bible how you are saved by God's grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, many of you are familiar with it. It is by grace that you have been saved. By grace you have been saved through faith. and This is a gift from God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. There's nothing we can do, no religious activity that will give us extra credit. There is nothing in our salvation other than God's grace through his son, Jesus. Unmerited favor to you have faith. Praise God that he's so generous. Praise God that he's so generous with us. And if you haven't accepted that gift of grace, by all means, by all means, don't, don't waste any more time confessing your sins to him, asking Jesus to forgive you your sins, and giving you this ongoing life with God. You know, I was talking to somebody between services about this sermon, and we hear this common expression from a number of people that say, I'm not a church-going person because I'm not good enough to go to church. There's this notion that somehow you need to meet a moral code for living to be able to come into the corporate gathering of Christians. And just the opposite is true. It's only by God's grace that any of us are here because none of us none of us can do things to gain the type of credit that would be required. Now, by way of contrast, here's an implication. Woe to us who cheapen God's grace by trying to add anything to it. Jesus plus anything, this form of of legalism that we have where we mix ideas and practices in together with the gospel, ultimately says or implies God's grace isn't sufficient, Jesus isn't sufficient, we need some other form of spirituality. And woe to us to say the supreme one of the universe isn't enough. It cheapens the great work Of this Supreme Son. Here's another implication. Through faith in Christ, we die to the old self and the spiritual laws of this world. Verse 20, look at it with me. It alludes to the previous section in Colossians in which Paul talks about how Christians are united to Jesus through faith. And their baptism symbolizes this. As he died, so too. They, their old sinful nature died. As he rose again, they rise again to new life. And therefore, why would we continue to play the sort of spiritual game of the world? There's extra spiritual credit. Different classes of godly people. These things are of no longer of material issue to us. Because that's old self type of stuff. And guess what? That man is dead. My spiritual life and your spiritual life is defined by your connection to one person. To Jesus himself. Implication number three. You'll notice in verse 19 that Jesus is referred to as the head of, From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth from God. If Jesus is the head, who is the body? The church. We see that throughout the Bible. You, Christians gathered together, are the body. Paul has such a high view of the local church throughout the ages and it continues to smack us in the face of our American evangelicalism that focuses on our individual spiritual experiences or the fact that we view church as something that we go to periodically to get our spiritual gas tank filled up or even go to regularly. But again and again and again we see that the body of Christ, the local church, is where God promises to grow His people. You don't go to church as we've talked about today already. You are the church. And when people realize what God means when he calls us the body of Christ, it changes our viewpoint on all the activities that we have together. Changes the way we look at our corporate worship together on Sunday. It changes the way we look at Sunday school, at Awana, at student ministries, at the gospel projects, and small groups on Wednesday nights. We take all of these things seriously because God promises that it's in this context with other Christians that He grows you with a growth that is only from Him. He has such a high view. Of this body of the church. And I know that it must chafe, or at least highlight the struggle for some of us who struggle with even basic levels of commitment or participation, but yet claim that we want to grow in some kind of relationship with God. Here's the last implication, and I'll close with this How then shall we live? Some of us are thinking if my relationship with Christ is not defined, or if my spiritual life is not defined by religious activities, lifestyle. If my spiritual life is not defined by the observance of certain ceremonies or days or festivals, lifestyle. My spiritual life is defined by connection to a person, Jesus. Then maybe Pastor Nick is saying that there's like really no moral code at all. Go have fun today no matter what the cost. And that's not what I'm saying at all. There is a moral code for Christians, but this moral code for life takes on an entirely different meaning when you find that it's rooted in a person. It's not an external set of rules or regulations, but it's rooted in the reality of a person, Jesus, who has done incredible things in your life. Colossians 1:21 says even though we were evil we have now become reconciled to God through Jesus. A couple of verses later in chapter 1 verse 27 we see that Jesus unites himself to us, In chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, we see that we were dead in our sin, but now we're made alive in him. In chapter 2, verse 15, we see that this supreme one conquered all evil powers, and therefore, by extension, we too can conquer evil powers and the sin that used to bind us. We see elsewhere, in Galatians 2.20, that the result of all of these things is that we live by faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And finally, 1 John chapter 2, 3 says, and we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. So out of tremendous, repeated, miraculous, supreme works of God again and again and again in the lives of his people who are bound to him and in response and gratitude to him, to the power of the Holy Spirit, That he gives them through the person of Jesus that dwells in them. And because they have new life, now there's a meaningful code for living. But it is not the defining part of our spirituality, Jesus is. So whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And as you do, make sure that you walk in him, in him who is the defining part of your spiritual life. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we confess to you our desire to create classes of (laughs) super-Christians, of different levels of spirituality, of course, always the inclusion of myself and at the exclusion of others. God, we confess to you our desires to impose codes for life upon people. And Lord, we ask you to continue to allow within us a wonder and an awe and an appreciation for the person of Jesus who we are connected to and how our union with him defines then all aspects of our life. God, we do want to please you. We want to please you not by some Jesus plus Something active, activity. But God, we want to please you through faith in this one you gave because you love us. And in response, a life, thoughts, words, deeds that fully display the grace of God that you've given to us. We pray for these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus.